0: Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like U.S. coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high-quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there Choose your content and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a wonderful episode for you today. We're going to be talking about record gold prices, one of the 2005 Westward Journey nickels, and we have an interview with C. John Ferrari, a former treasurer and member of the board of directors of the Society of Paper Money Collectors and an expert on obsolete paper money.
1: We hope that this show has not been viewed by you as obsolete. We try to bring fresh and new content every week. We hope you're enjoying it. If you are, please subscribe and send us a note, by the way, and tell us uh, what you'd like us to talk about. And maybe we can uh, weave that into the next episode. Find us on whatever podcast platform you use, and we will continue to be here week in and week out so we can share this wonderful hobby we all love.
0: Last week, we talked about silver prices ticking up pretty noticeably, and we were sort of pontificating about that. But in the meantime, at least at time of recording, gold has spiked to an
1: all-time high. What's going on there? So, yeah, gold has hit a high. I believe you have the exact number, but, you know, there's been a, a little bit of pullback as we record. You know, there's a lot of uh, economic anxiety. There's, uh, you know, with everything going on, as uh, last week was the announcement, the um, the 33% most shrinkage in in the American economy. There's been this massive move toward gold, and we're seeing strong demand for physical assets, precious metals at the rich side, gold at the rich side, and, and silver. Silver's the poor man's gold, right? So there's been a lot of movement in that direction. It's no surprise, given the state of the economy. It feels like a lot like 2008 all over again, although. This time it feels a little different because you know, you're know you contending with a broader health issue and the ways that everyone's handling the situation. And there's lots of businesses that are hurting or closed and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of similarity, but there are some noticeable differences. And I think all of that is is why we're seeing gold at the price we're seeing it at
0: yeah i've i've seen different numbers n p r had it at one thousand nine hundred and thirty one c n n has it at one thousand nine hundred and forty four i've heard one thousand nine hundred and forty seven in any event, whatever the ultimate pinnacle value in this current upswing has been, it has more than broken the previous record of just over nineteen hundred $1,900, dollars nineteen hundred and twenty one or so that was set back in uh, the late summer of 2011, so almost exactly nine years ago, which is is decently after the start of the Great Recession back in 2008. But it is at a nine-year high and an all-time high, so it it beat its previous record from uh, 2011. So if anyone is uh, sitting on gold right now, or if anyone has a lot of gold, now would probably be a pretty good time to uh, to cash in or wait and continue to watch the market and see if it goes even higher. If you're sitting on
1: gold, then you probably have a lot of money there because it's going to take a lot of gold to, to support you. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: yeah, a throne a, a throne of gold.
1: I would have a throne of copper or nickel. <laughs> Actually, I could take my Canadian nickels and build a throne out of them because – I would have figured your throne would be made out of books. Ah, yes, true. But, but you know, I've been culling. I've been winnowing my stuff down. This year has forced me to think about, okay, I, I don't have time to read all these books that I want to read. I love to read and I love the hunt for new books and all that. So last week, I, I pulled 175 books out of my library in my living room. And that doesn't touch the numismatic titles. The week prior, I had 110 that I pulled out. So we're talking almost 300 books that I'm just saying, no, I'm never going to be able to get to these. And so I could use those to build a throne or a bed or i, I could probably all the books i have i could build, build a house out of them you know what that's an idea
0: no well, hope uh but better hope lightning doesn't strike that house i have a feeling it might uh might catch on fire if you uh if you made it out of books so well so in any or, case, or,
1: or the uh, the big bad wolf doesn't come by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: by. exactly that that house might not withstand uh high winds very well so anyway, gold is extraordinarily high right now. Uh, we'll see if that price increase proves durable, and we'll see if it goes even higher as the, our nationwide economic uncertainty becomes more and more pronounced. With that out of the way, so uh, the other thing I was thinking about because of our interview with John Ferrari is you know, the role of, of numismatic publications. Ferrari has published in a number of different club journals. He's written and been cited in I mean if you go into the Newman Numismatic Portal and you type in C John Ferrari they even have a record of his course of uh, his correspondence with some prominent numismatists going back decades and he also he wrote the foreword to one of Whitman's obsolete paper money volumes so I guess I'm just reflecting on the role of sort of numismatic periodicals in general you know not specifically Coin World but Also club publications and things like that. Well,
1: it's funny you mention that because there are actually shows going on despite the situation. And I did not attend because of uh, many factors here. But my hometown show, I'm from St. Louis, the Missouri Numismatic Society show in late July, they had their their show. And every year for the show, they published their anniversary show publication they only do once a year you know some publications are monthly or quarterly this one is annual and a friend there in the the society mailed us some copies so i put one in the coin world library i have one for my library i have one i'll be sending you, chris and i have uh, one for one of my nephews and another for another of nephews you know every year there's this 60 page publication and there's numerous articles quick recaps on some featurey type topics there's usually several Missouri-related stories. I have found that, and I actually, in the podcast studio in the office, my Missouri Journal of Numismatics, my collection of those is right here at arm's length from the microphone. So I was able to add that to the library here. It lists items of Missouri-related exonumia a lot. That's one of the reasons I like it. It may be on the Newman Numismatic Portal. I haven't checked. I have been getting rid of a lot of things that are on the portal because it's like, well, I don't need the physical object in that case, but because it's Missouri, I probably will keep those even if it's out there. It just has a special place. I like looking back. There's several items that I have found to buy for my collection that are referenced in there. One of my favorite is a uh, 1974, I believe, James Eads medal. James Eads was the engineer or architect, whatever, who built the Eads Bridge in St. Louis, which was a milestone at the time in 1874. This medal celebrates the centennial. So there's definitely a place for club publications and things like that, especially for you know whether you're talking fun topics for Florida United Numismatist or you know the Nina Journal for New England Numismatic Association. Mm-hmm. What ones are special to you or or of interest to you?
0: Nina Journal for sure, just because being in New England, it's one of the larger regional organizations, and it's um, fun to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nina, Nina, Nina. My older brother and I, we called our grandmother, my my maternal grandmother, Nina, N I N A, Nina. So Nina is 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 sort of similar. Sort of, it kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, um, I also I have a Nina medal that was struck for Nina in 1975, and it's it's a cool piece that I really like in my collection. And I haven't really delved deeply into periodicals produced by numismatic organizations, though truthfully, I'd like to. Like you, Jeff, I have a lot of loyalty to my home state, so any records from something like the Boston Numismatic Society or, or some similar organization would be of interest. And I've also found, I think we've we've touched on it briefly on the show, and I'd love to devote more time to it in a future episode, but there are also a lot of cool numismatic items that are produced by clubs, whether it's wooden nickels produced by the Shelby County Coin Club, whether it's the Nina medal that I have. I have a counter-stamped uh, Mexican 10% silver peso from, I believe, 1965, celebrating um, a major anniversary for the Boston Numismatic Society that was counterstamped that year. It came up in an auction and I thought it was kind of cool. So I bought it. So like you, in the same way that you like to collect things that have something to do with St. Louis, I like to collect things that have a connection to Boston. So
1: that's funny. You mention a counterstamp because in 1963, the Missouri Numismatic Society counterstamped Maria Teresa Toller's Oh, that's cool. And there are only like 457 of them out there. That was for the 25th anniversary of the organization. And I saw in a Facebook group, a dealer offered it for basically melt plus shipping. And so I was all over that, right? Because, you know, how can you go wrong? It's at basically a dollar or two over melt or whatever at the time. And with silver values where they are now, you did quite well. In Except I did extraordinarily well. If you look through the lens of the fact that a major auction house in the U S had one in their sale in the last couple of years, and it wasn't long after I got mine and it sold for like $125, dollars So now, you know, we understand that auction records, sometimes people get into spirited bidding and auctions. And like, if you wanted to go buy that retail, maybe you're not going to pay as much just because, uh, I mean, it depends on the item. I I'm since this is exonymia. I'm thinking specifically of exonymia because I've seen multiple examples of like so-called dollars where I saw an auction result. I saw one for sale at a show and I talked to Jeff Shevlin who we've had on the show. And I go, Jeff, is this, wow, this is underpriced. And he's like, no, you know, auction results are a different strata. You know, you then you're talking, it's slabbed. It's, you know, it's, it's a different market. So, Is it worth $150? Probably not. Do I think it's worth $100 to the right buyer, maybe at the Missouri Numismatic Society? Heck yeah. Uh, But it's in my collection and it's one of those prize steals, if you will. You know, the, the dealer was happy to sell it for the price they offered it, I'm sure they paid you know 90 percent of melt, which is a standard. you know they probably paid 12 bucks and I got it for twenty dollars. so you know everybody's happy
0: well, and I imagine most collectors have similar memories of just having found something really really cool, whether at a show in a shop or something and then you know opportunity strikes you you find something that could be quite valuable and you end up pouncing on it and, and getting quite a deal and in your case, you got something cool and St. Louis related. So we've been talking about our own stories in numismatics, things that interest us. What was going on in numismatic history this week, Jeff?
1: All right. So we're not going to have to drive um, the DeLorean too far back into time. Set the clock to August 5th. But 2005, so this is even in your lifetime. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I remember generally this event, uh, and I think many of the listeners will. It was an exciting time sort of for circulating coin designs, because on that day in 2005, the Jefferson Ocean in View five cent coin, nickel, if you will, was launched at Cape Disappointment, Washington. Now, the story, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it happens all the time is that it's named Cape Disappointment because they thought they were at the Pacific Ocean and alas, they were not. And the Lewis and Clark journals record somebody in the um, expedition saying, ocean in view, oh, the joy... And that sentiment is on the reverse of the nickel and celebrated with that nickel. I believe that was the fourth of the four special designs issued in 2004 and five. Of course, you had the peace metal and the keelboat and the bison one. So it's a neat little short set, those four coins. And that last one from the group was issued in 2005 on August 5th. That's this week in numismatic history.
0: I remember seeing ads as a young lad of about nine or so in 2005. I remember seeing advertisements for the Westward Journey Nichols taken out by the Mint in, I think we were visiting my, my great aunt who lives down on Cape Cod. I believe we were visiting with her and she had Time Magazine or The New Yorker or something, some, one of those publications. And You know, I was just kind of flipping. I want to say it was time, but truthfully, you know, that's that's kind of lost to memory. Uh, And I was flipping through and I saw the ad and I was really excited because at nine, I hadn't started collecting coins at all seriously. And you could make the argument that I still haven't started collecting coins at all seriously, (laughs) but I hadn't I hadn't like ever bought coins specifically. I'd received a couple as gifts because my my parents and and relatives knew that I was interested in coins and they kind of wanted to to wet that interest. And I remember seeing those ads and being like, "Oh wow, that's really cool. There are new nickels coming out." And you know, and I remember finding them in circulation within the next couple of years and being really, you know, being really excited by it. So, I remember the the Westward Journey nickel program really well, and that was that along with the the 50 state quarter program was one of the my first major sort of numismatic memories. I still have my um my folder for uh, for all of the, the dates and mint marks for the West Virginia nickels as yeah. well. I still have that. It's funny, you know, that that's what we're talking about because I yeah. do have a lot of memories associated with the program,
1: and and it was a catalyst for your nascent collecting.
0: Well, very very well said. Yes, a catalyst for my for my numismatic affliction that has remained to this day. Yeah. So <laughs> now to pivot to an old issue of Coin World. We, uh, we're looking at an issue from 1975 because that was the beginning of uh, John Ferrari's tenure as the treasurer of the Society of Paper Money Collectors. He was finishing out someone else's term, interestingly, but he began in 1975. So we're taking a look back at this issue. What what was happening uh, on the front page of Coinroll? What, what were the, the top stories? So we are looking at
1: the August 6th issue from 1975. And on the front page, you know, the big news, uh, I think the most interesting news for listeners today was the story about the Bureau of Engraving and Printing offering a new souvenir card for the annual A convention. Now... Today, that would probably be uh, on page four or five, somewhere inside the issue, but it it was um, top of the news in 75. Souvenir card, somebody who's unfamiliar with that term, they might go, what is that? So in short, they're a neat little area uh, and there's a a group, Souvenir Card Collector Society, actually that focus on that. But you take one side generally, sometimes you have cards with two sides, but it's it's literally card stock. So it's, it's not just, you know, you're, Eight and a half by eleven copy paper. It has some nice heft to it, and you print a design from a classic banknote, and that's generally the case. Sometimes there's um, cards, especially from the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. Today, the cards often just have vignettes; they won't show the whole note. There was a shift at some point in attitude because of counterfeiting concerns, even though most people would look at it, you, if, if you were to get a card and cut it out, cut that banknote design out and try to spend it, you're going to have people looking at you like you're a three-headed alien or something. But they're really neat. And the card for... The 1975 convention in Los Angeles shows the silver certificate with George and Martha Washington. So it's just an elegant, fun design. And oftentimes, you know, local clubs or state clubs will do those cards and they'll put obsolete notes that are indigenous, if you will, that are that are endemic or specific to that state. So I don't know that the Missouri Numismatic Society has done this, but maybe they should, hint, hint, if anyone's listening, uh, they should take a Missouri obsolete note and put that on a souvenir card for their convention. And at some conventions, especially the ANA conventions, there's a guy that often shows up with what's called a spider press, an old classic banknote printing press, well, printing press, but they use them for banknotes. And it has these giant arms on it. That's why I think why they call it the spider. And you literally crack crank the press, the the arms down to bring the dies together and using the intaglio print method, inject the ink into the cardboard and impress the design on there. And oftentimes, I think his name is Mike Bean. Oftentimes, some of those are only available at the convention and they only make a limited number and you have to enter a drawing. And they're not cheap sometimes, but they they can appreciate in the aftermarket. So there's a whole fascinating array of the hobby that's encapsulated just in that news story. Also inside the issue are collector reactions to the bicentennial coinage, which, you know, the bicentennial coinage for all intents and purposes were commemorative coins, even though the uh, legislation and the treasury took numerous steps to say they weren't because, you know, we hadn't had commemorative coins since 1953, 23 years earlier, or 52 rather, you know, there was this hiatus, this imposed, not ban, but, you know, for for all intents and purposes, a ban on commemorative coins. Well, the, the bicentennial coins were commemorative in nature, but they circulated, which was unlike the traditional, most traditional commemorative coins. And certainly only those coins, the commemorative coins that circulated were those that were dumped into the market because they were unable to be sold so that wasn't a function of of how those coins operated collectors seem to really take to the designs they're classics today i know at local shows and shops and just talking to people when you when you say you're into coins uh, people go oh i got one of those uh, 1776 quarters well <laughs> that's in the broader population those designs have really been noticed and appreciated so that was the fun in that issue, the August 6th issue from 1975. So there were two letters from
0: the letters to the editor page that really jumped out at me this week, both of which deal with grading in one form or another.
1: You mean grading was a topic in 1975? Imagine that.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a contentious topic at that. So the first letter opens and it reads, I am gravely disturbed that present proposals for the American Numismatic Association's grading board may render the project more harmful than helpful. A board might be of some value if its function were limited simply to giving grading opinions on coins submitted to it. But I violently object to any notion that the board will, quote, settle disputes, unquote, between sellers and buyers. Fundamental to a free market transaction is a willing buyer and a willing seller. The buyer must have the absolute right to determine his own satisfaction with the goods. If he is unsatisfied, even if for unmeritorious reasons, he should be placed under no obligation to purchase. Apparently, a decision by the grading board that a coin is within five Sheldon points of its described grade would obligate a buyer to accept the coin. This is actually scandalous. No matter what the board might say, it must be understood by all that the buyer retains the unfettered right to return the coin anyway. He concludes... By saying, grading, unlike authenticity, is a subjective area. A proficient numismatist may not have the equipment to authenticate a coin, but he should certainly be able to grade it for himself. There would be no overgrading if there were no suckers to buy overgraded coins. Although some protection for innocent buyers may be proper, we must not overlook the fact that anyone who buys an expensive coin without knowing how to grade it has no business buying it at all from Frank S. Robinson of Albany, New York. I found that interesting for a number of reasons, Jeff. You go ahead.
1: <laughs> so just real quickly, Frank Robinson is and has been a dealer since that time at least. And I just got an email, his, his email today selling world coins. So uh, Frank <laughs> is, is still very much active in the hobby as he was in 1975, 45 years ago.
0: Well and and it's interesting too because 1975 was before the sort of explosion of grading companies onto the scene. I mean, mm-hmm. the Sheldon 70 point scale had existed for a long time before, but grading companies really didn't exist in a meaningful form. I believe A's authentication service launched in nineteen seventy-two.
1: Now and is, is something you just said though made made me think, who is the creator of the Big Bang Theory? It's Chuck Lore, right? Um, I wouldn't know. Yeah, it's it's Chuck. Here, I'm pretty I'll, sure his I'll, name is Chuck Lorre. So his two main characters are Sheldon and Penny. What are the odds that he's a <laughs> coin collector? That actually,
0: that would be really funny if he had named two of the central characters of that show after,
1: after <laughs> Sheldon. Um, and the, I mean, it's for it's for copper. It's for sense. It's Sheldon and Penny. What are the yeah, We need to we need to do a, a deep dive investigation into this. I'm sorry I derailed your thought, but I remember... A year or two ago, I wrote a
0: brief piece in CoinWorld about. There was some episode in a recent season of The Big Bang Theory where. I don't know if it was. If it was. They were getting a Nobel Prize or. There was some kind of medal being awarded, and there was some exonemic fact about the metal that had caught collector's attention or something. I remember writing a little bit about the Big Bang Theory at some point in the last couple of years. So it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that. But it is interesting, though. Robinson's 1975 letter to me captures a really interesting moment in the history of really in the history and development of American numismatics because authentication services were just getting off the ground. I believe, again, if, if someone knows better than me, feel free to correct me. But
1: yeah, authentication, not grading. So that was yeah. the American Numismatic Association Certification Service Annex. That launched in 72, right? I don't remember the exact year, but the, you're, you're in the ballpark. The early 1970s. Yes. So, and that was owned by the ANA, which was later actually sold uh, eventually to Amos Media, you know, parent of CoinWorld. But yes, authentication was very much at the fore in the hobby then as grading would be 10 years later
0: it's interesting because you know there were obviously grading standards that existed and the Sheldon 70 point scale was deployed widely but you know there weren't really third party arbitrators of grades i mean you couldn't go buy a slabbed coin the way you can now and to this day i mean slabbing coins particularly in for ancient coin collectors remains a pretty controversial practice a lot of people disagree with not only the grades that are assigned, but often with the structure of the business itself. And so it's interesting to see that, you know, grading disputes between buyers and sellers were very common. And I mean, the, the, they still are. I mean, th- that still happens. But it's interesting that apparently a proposal had been floated for some kind of resolution mechanism between dissatisfied buyers and sellers. And Robinson was objecting strenuously to it. So that brings me to a briefer second letter. That was sent from a reader named Stephen Inat, I-H-N-A-T, Inat, from Whiting, Indiana. And it reads, Concerning the new grading scale of 100 points that a number of collectors are in favor of, forget it. To increase the scale from 70 to 100 points would just increase the troubles for the novice as well as the advanced collector. Overall, an additional 30 points just seems too much to, quote, tack on to an already accepted grading system. A coin is a coin, and no matter how you're going to try to improve the description of the coin's grade, you aren't going to be able to improve the coin itself. In closing, I won't say that this scale is not without merit, but remember what basically brought this about was the dispute held by collectors and dealers alike on mint state 60 to 70 silver dollars. Take another look. And again, it's from Steve Inhat of Whiting, Indiana. So we've talked about this on the show before too. The yes. <laughs> one hundred, A 100-point 100 scale seems more intuitive and in a lot of ways we're actually closer to a 100-point scale than they would have been in 1975 because now we have plus grades, we have star grades, we, we have, have all of these- CAC We have stickers, all these, we have
1: wing stickers, we have, yes.
0: Which, which has added a, le- a level of granularity to the process of grading, which itself was already a relatively granular procedure.
1: It's funny because Ron Guth, has, we mentioned him a couple weeks ago or three, four episodes ago, you know, he has proposed that we do do go to this hundred point scale. So the idea has been out there for decades, but I think one of the things that somebody at the local coin club that you used to attend and that I attend and will attend when they, you know, start up again. When and if I visit Ohio again, I would
0: love to attend a meeting at some point in the future because I, I miss those folks.
1: Yeah. So he says his contention is the whole, the grading system is one barrier of entry for new collectors because it's just so confusing. And, you know, well, why not? It's 70. Why not a hundred? You know, everything, you know, you grade a test, it's a hundred and this and that. And, and there's certainly some merit to that idea that it has to be something that can be grasped. But I also think at some point, you know, when you're involved in a pursuit or an an area, you know, if I, if I want to understand baseball and hear, uh, at my house, I have a bunch of baseball books. I'm a big baseball fan. You know, I can't look at batting average and try it. Well, why is it, you know, out of a thousand instead of 10,000 or, you know, it is what it is. You know, you have to, you have to meet the hobby where it is, but at the same time, there is, I can see that there's resistance for somebody who is not familiar.
0: I mean, it, the existing infrastructure would be fairly hard to retool and retraining graders on a 100 point scale and, and assigning numerical grades, coins of different series and different conditions across the board would be very difficult. And your point about the 70 point scale not being particularly intuitive, I think is well taken. And Mr. Whiting back in 1975, Wrote that to move to a 100 point system would increase the troubles for the novice as well as the advanced collector. I actually don't know that it would increase troubles for the novice collector. I think that it might, as you pointed out, Jeff, the 70 point scale could be a bit of a barrier uh, to entry. It's, like I said, not particularly intuitive. So it might make for beginners, people on sort of the early in their collecting careers, it might actually make it a little bit easier. But changing, regrading, extant graded examples of coins and retooling the infrastructure and changing the way that the companies function is it doable absolutely it would require a tremendous amount of work and I think the question is is the payoff for that effort worth the effort itself and at this point I have no idea i, I don't I don't think so but I again I think the idea has merit and actually jeff you mentioned uh Ron Guth's advocacy of a hundred point system, I covered that in the last couple of years for Cornworld as yeah, well. So, yeah. yeah, he's. I mean, he's he's beating that drum, and I'm not. I'm not opposed to it. It doesn't make a big difference to me, but I also understand the amount of inertia and the amount of resistance to it. So,
1: yeah, it, it certainly would be a boon for the grading services. <laughs> we know that
0: because <laughs> well, it people would, be, would have to resubmit everything. Oh God! It, oh, the number of fees they would collect, it would be absolutely unreal. But th- the question is, with the amount of, of money and work that it would take on the front end. Would that? I mean, I'm sure that would be outweighed by the number of grading fees they would get. I mean, the question is, would they offer a discount for for regrading coins they'd already graded? I'm I mean, sure they
1: would because you know they do that now. If you want to, you know, if you just need a, you know, if a holder's cracked or whatever. I mean, there's there's and, and certainly yeah. dealer quantity discounts exist and all that. So I mean, it's oh, it's yeah. it's certainly it's in the realm of possibility.
0: And that last thing you point out is is a bone of contention with smaller dealers who don't get that bulk rate, which I can sympathize with. To some, you sympathize,
1: uh, to some extent. but hey, you know. So if you run a car dealership, you get a better price than if you go and buy two cars at the at the dealership, right? I mean, that's just no, 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 you know, no, no wholesale that's retail. No, no. That's that's just no, 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 life. No, no. That's so, that's no, no, that's that's fair. Um, so. life under late capitalism.
0: Um, <laughs> but no. Um, so now that we've done some reading of an old Coin World issue, Jeff,
1: what numismatic literature have you been reading outside of Coin World? So I'm going to expand this uh, the idea or concept of this a little bit today. I've made reference several times, even today. To, you know, I'm organizing and trying to simplify and just, you know, really get a handle on what I have and what I want to have and and all that. And as I paw through my stack of magazines, I found something yesterday which ignited some childhood memories, although these are more recent issues. But I found a, a dozen or so issues of a great magazine called Western and Eastern Treasures. You would not know it from the name, but it's focused on those who engage in the metal detecting hobby. And uh, it is something that I had a little cheap little metal detector when I was 12 or something. I read Western and Eastern Treasures. I found it first, heard of it first at my local Daniel Boone library there in uh, suburban St. Louis which is incidentally where I was introduced to CoinWorld So, and where I saw the ad for the CoinWorld internship that I applied for that I got in 2003 that has set me on this path now 17 years later. Dude, we're, going, um, we're going far back into we're, your new mathematics story. We're, we're doing a deep dive. Uh, so Western and Eastern Treasures Magazine, it's just, it's one of those things, especially to a 12 to 15 year old who had that interest in history and interest in coins. It's treasure hunting at its finest. You know, this idea that you can go out there and find buried treasure and that the scope of that differs everything from aluminum Soda can tabs to, you know, old wheat scents to, hey, here's a gold class ring sort of thing. And I can remember back in the day stories of, there was one particular story, I'd love to read it again, about these kids. Their dad died and they knew, they remembered in the 60s, he worked at a bank and every night he would bring home money that he bought at the bank and they would go through and pull out the silver and he would buy the silver and take what wasn't silver back. And he hoarded the milk cans, not, not like, you know, a little milk bottle, but the, the milk cans full of silver And they, and buried them in his yard of all places. And they had to bring out a professional excavator and this and that. Now it seems apocryphal. Uh, I don't believe it is. I mean, you know, the, it made the vetting for the magazine and they had photos and everything, but that was one that stands out in my mind from my youth. And so I was reminded of that as I found my Western and Eastern treasures. And around that time that sent me to the bookshelf to pull off one of my Earliest, Probably my earliest numismatic book, if you can call it that, it's Buried Treasures of the Ozarks by W.C. Jameson. Why is this interesting? Well, you know, we all love, we're all drawn to those stories of hidden treasure. We know at CoinWorld that when when there's a hoard story, whether it's in the U.S., the Saddle Ridge Horde, or whether it's in the United Kingdom where we get a lot of reports of hoards being found, that readers just eat that stuff up. We love to find hidden treasure. And so this book tells stories of these treasures that are folklorically uh, said to have been uh, located in the Ozarks. I remember reading this book. I bought this book in 1991. We were on family vacation in Branson, Missouri at Silver Dollar City, sitting there waiting for the evening performance, uh, music and comedy, whatever, it's a hillbilly heaven. And uh, just being mystified and in awe of all these supposed treasures that were out there in the hills and hollers of the Ozarks. One in particular, there's no more famous than the Yokum dollar, which is said to have been silver mined from the Ozarks by a local immigrant family and that had limited circulation and they just slipped off into the ether never to be found, but for a couple that surfaced in the 1900s. Well, Tom DeLore is an expert on these and categorically says they're fake, they're modern uh, reproductions, but the story is compelling and it certainly was to, uh, I would have been 12 at the time. So I hope everyone listening has a book like that, that they, or, or an experience or an event that reminds them of the spark that started this, that, that really made them interested in the world of history and numismatics and, and possibility that exist and storytelling through these objects, because that book does it for me. And it all, I think it's really started with the magazine and and a combination thereof, of each feeding each other and then getting coin rolled and reading coin rolled and and so forth.
0: Well, I think that a really interesting article or book could be a collection of people's introductions to numismatics how different people got started in the hobby how different starts in the hobby kind of naturally developed different areas of focus or interest so thanks for sharing that Jeff We'll have a link
1: to something in asylum about the Yoakum dollar where I actually told a similar story of my experience with the book uh, to asylum readers. 10 10 or so years ago i don't know but we'll have that link and there's you can find a whole lot of stuff out there about it if you don't want to go get the book
0: (laughs) well we do encourage people to to buy the book not the coin but so definitely check that out and listeners have gotten a little bit of insight into a couple of numismatic episodes from jeff's youth and mine the show so that's really cool and we would love to hear you know from listeners how you all started collecting youth is
1: served today here on the coin world podcast (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Something like that. So now, Jeff, I
1: think I owe you an answer to a question. You do. So uh, last episode, we discussed with James Bevel, Jim Bevel, the paper money of Texas. And so the expert level question from the Coin World trivia game was how many note issues did the Republic of Texas issue? Uh, you know, I'm not going to ask for a delineation of, you know, dates and signatures and all that stuff. Just give me a number.
0: Between oh, wow. one and I'm a million, going, <laughs> without without access to to Bevel's book, um, I'm going to say, were there 25 different note
1: issues? Um, you are a bit high. By yeah, that's what a I lot. thought.
0: <laughs> I figured it wasn't many. I, I didn't know how many there were.
1: So uh, the answer is actually six.
0: <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are we talking about like series, or are we talking about individual issues?
1: series i mean i that's what, oh i, I mean oh, to me okay. that's well, that's what the issue you know we're not we're not asking how many denominations and signature you know oh, just, okay
0: see see that's see I, I thought that was what i thought that was the nature of the question okay the number I, of the, notes, the question oh. probably
1: should have been written i see
0: from okay for the well, card to say how many series but i wouldn't have gotten it anyway so it almost doesn't matter but yeah. i do think that, that might have been a slightly better way to have phrase that question sure. but sure. alas it is the Cornwall trivia game and wonderful as it is not every question is perfect, and apparently some of the answers aren't even accurate. So yeah, um, so that's, that 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 presents an interesting challenge for us week to week using this game. Certainly,
1: through the lens of today, there's things that need to be updated. Uh, so, well, yeah, but I mean, it, it came
0: out in 1985. You know, they yeah. couldn't have pre- obviously they couldn't have predicted anything after 1985. No, I understand,
1: but, but, but you know, sometimes there are questions that are hewn to that moment in history. And we've, we've obviously advanced from that. So because we were talking about the coin shortage recently, Mm, uh, we've got a a sort of a question that makes sense, uh, along those lines. And the question is which U S city now has a mint, but no federal reserve bank, just a branch bank of the fed. So there are 13 federal reserve banks in the U S Lucky 13, yep. 1913, the Federal Reserve Act. But some states, they're districts, right? There's 13 districts. And so there's a main district branch. Interestingly, Missouri, my home state, is the only state to have two district feds in the state, one's in St. Louis and one's in Kansas City. So I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think if I could even name all 13
0: cities, all, all the 13 main cities off the Well, top. I think I could, I I could get at least, I could get most of them.
1: Boston, Atlanta, New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco, St. Louis, Kansas City, Minneapolis, um, how many is can, that?
0: <laughs> I mean, Kansas City and Minneapolis are two that I don't know that I would have thought of. The The East yeah. Coast ones I can rattle yeah, off sure, sure. pretty easily. And, and,
1: uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, and I don't remember the rest, but you know, the idea is, hey, there's 13. So, so think yeah. about that. Anyway, uh, for, I sure will. You'll, you'll have an answer next week and listeners will, uh, you'll find out the answer next week. As long as you don't do the Google machine that that's no fun. That's cheating.
0: Be wrong like me. Um, <laughs> that's, that's 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 the fun way to do this. That's the way that's the way you learn. So, anyway, um in the interim while you're pondering that question and and processing what you've heard thus far, please enjoy your interview with John Ferrari.
2: We are very lucky today to be joined by John Ferrari, a former treasurer and member of the board of directors of the Society of Paper Money Collectors and an expert on obsolete paper money. Thanks so much for being with us, Sean.
3: Well, you're welcome, Chris, anytime.
2: So we've had obsolete paper money experts on the podcast before, specifically Wendell Wolka, who specializes in the obsolete notes of Indiana and Ohio, where CoinWorld's offices are located. You specialize in obsolete paper money from my neck of the woods, Massachusetts, and then some notes in New England. What drove you to specialize in that particular area?
3: Well, being from that area, uh and going to local shows, you don't find much available from outside of New England except the southern states. So, uh, that's how I started out. Actually, I started out with just Connecticut, and then I found out that with all the mileage I was putting on, I wasn't getting very many notes. So I just branched out for the to the rest of uh, New England, the all the states now, all six states. And uh, it was a lot, a lot better. At least when I went to a show, I came home with something.
2: Sure, I imagine access to material at local shows that probably that definitely drove a little bit of that interest. So, how did Massachusetts obsolete paper money compare with that of other states in terms of design and in terms of function?
3: There's much more available from Massachusetts than the other New England states. Maybe Connecticut has maybe the second uh, largest base. But Massachusetts is a little different, and actually each state is a little different. Massachusetts, you get a large amount of notes from around the Boston area, which is normal, because that's where all the the people were, so that's what you would find. In Massachusetts, Jacob Perkins was the uh, instigator of anti-counterfeiting devices, and he, in about 1813, I think it was, Devised a new system. So the state actually liked it so much that they told the banks that they had to use that particular system. So you don't find that outside of Massachusetts too often. An occasional note here and there, maybe two or three banks in the other New England states, and maybe not even all of them. I don't think Connecticut even had a single bank that used his type of notes.
1: Can you explain the the thing that distinguishes his his notes from the others?
3: Yes, I guess so. Before he was uh in the limelight, the plates for the notes were engraved by hand, and each engraving, each note had to be engraved separately. Now, normally on a plate you would have four notes. It was, you know, reasonable to do it that way rather than three or four notes. Um, And each one, because they were engraved separately, even though they looked alike at first glance, they were a little bit different. The best example of that would be the Washington Bank in Westerly, Rhode Island. If you look at their first first issue of notes, each one has a uh, portrait of Washington. And it's a primitive portrait. It's like a line drawing, actually. Each one, when you look at it, is a little different, leading you to believe that it's probably one of them is counterfeit. Especially once they're off the sheet, you know, cut up and distributed, you may not know which direction to go in because this one's different from that one and that one's different from the third and fourth one. So I guess instances like that caused a number of companies to their luck at anti-counterfeiting. And Perkins was the first one to make a plate that had interchangeable parts. So let's say the title of the bank took up a a line of about maybe two or three inches on the note, and maybe the town that it was in took up another space, maybe an inch long or an inch and a half long. So he must have noticed that, gee, I don't have to make the plate every time, so I can just make a slug to fit in this area, and a slug, let's say the, the town name, and another slug to fit in where the title is. And these slugs can be interchanged. The notes themselves would look pretty much the same until he branched out and started making different designs on the plates themselves. But originally, uh, they were like that. So you could look at six different notes, and they'd be from six different banks, six different towns, and yet they, at a distance, a small, short distance, they would all look alike that was a pretty good advance in the technology, but it led to lots of other problems and so forth. But he and uh, other primitive uh, engravers kept working, and they came up with what we have, well, not today, but in the, late, the mid to late
2: 1800s. So, can you forward to the first volume of the Whitman Encyclopedia of Paper Money? You described the unpopularity of obsolete banknotes in the 1960s likening the obsolete paper money to scratched or otherwise damaged coins.
3: How have attitudes shifted
2: since the 60s, and what drove that change?
3: Dealers, especially, did not know about obsolete paper money. Yes, they may have seen one here and there. They didn't even have a name for it. But when this became popular, they were called obsolete notes, or they were called broken banknotes, meaning the bank went broke. Well, How many times have I spoken to a dealer who really wasn't a paper money dealer and you ask them for broken banknotes, and they ask you, "What, what do you mean? What's broken about it? You know, they assume that it was ripped or something like that. So you had to explain every time. When that was going on, up to that point, these were not very popular. They were just curious things that were found. And so they didn't have pricing guides. There were none yet. There was nothing to tell you about them. There was no historical uh, reference, like you see in the Whitman catalogs. They either stayed away from it or they just took a flyer on it and said, "Well, if I buy it for ten bucks, maybe I can sell it for twenty or fifteen or whatever." Eventually, a few years of dealers doing that, they became a little versed in the values of the of these things. If I was going to a show or two every week or two, which It was very easy to do back then these were all local shows i would begin to notice a few different probably the most common banknotes available from you know some dealer's stock and eventually as you'll see where one dealer was selling them for say 10 bucks and another was trying to sell them at say 25 bucks And you formed an opinion as to who you should go to and how much you should spend and so forth. And from all of that, maybe 10 years of that, then came price guides. Haxby was the first one to consolidate all that into one volume, I should say four volumes. But um, there were other price guides, probably encouraged by auction catalogs and auction results. And uh, most of the people had bought these notes would buy them from auctions, they sort of felt, I believe, that they were a little better off not spending, overspending, I should say, not overspending if they got it at an auction. So in other words, there was there was somebody else bidding on it, and uh, maybe they win it, and maybe they don't. How prevalent
1: are these uh, notes from the New England area, considering that that's sort of the uh, the cradle of American life with, you know, the revolution and all that, how abundantly can you find them? I I think there's always, at least I in my little brain, think of, like, Antiques Roadshow and how much stuff people keep and collect and save, especially, you know, stuff that comes out of New England. How easy is it to find some of these pieces, and and how likely is it that, you know, a 200-year-old almost object has survived?
3: (laughs) Relatively. Certain states have a lot more issue available nowadays than other states, and the reason for that probably is, number one, there were more banks, so there's more leftover currency that got saved. Let's take New England. The banks in New England are relatively small as compared to like New York City banks and Albany and uh, Chicago and, and so forth. The banks didn't have to put out a lot of Tonnage, if you want to call it that of banknotes, so they would print the little small box full, I guess, and that would last them for a few months and uh, then they'd make put another order in for another box full, but the big banks would probably get you know a hundred thousand notes once they were issued they were that was it for the bank you could they didn't really reuse them in some cases they did, but not all the time so the big banks putting out initially all that paper, uh, it stands to reason that these notes there'd be many more of them in circulation even today. but the small ones, the small banks, that wouldn't happen. So in New England you have a lot of small banks, except you know downtown Boston, maybe Hartford, too, a few other larger cities, they didn't even come close to putting out the amount that other uh, larger banks in larger towns did. So the notes that are left now are the leftovers from way back, and they never printed many to begin with, so there aren't many left. How stable
2: and reputable were New England banks as compared to banks in other places? A popular anecdote that paper money collectors and experts sometimes share is that the wildcat banking era, as it became known, You know, there was widespread counterfeiting. Sometimes people would make up banks that didn't even exist. How did the the currency-issuing institutions in Massachusetts, and how did the stability of that currency compare to other places?
3: Okay. The banks in all of New England, you know, there's been an exception here and there, were very good in keeping tabs on their circulation. So they were liked. Their issues were liked and used, but when you get to a larger bank or a bank that's far away. Not many people, let's say in New England, knew about some banks in Michigan. And so these banks somehow, it may have been legal, but it probably wasn't, they would order and issue a lot more of their notes. Those notes, of course, they couldn't circulate them out there because there were no people (laughs) compared to New England in New York. So they would get people to fill up their carpet bags and go south or go east <laughs> and peddle these things. So what they would get from, say, Detroit to, say, Boston, and they would offer them to bank people a deal in, in money at a discount. And uh, they would offer them at, let's say, a dollar bill at let's say 50 cents. That may be a little extreme, but say 50 cents. And, um, these agents in Boston would buy it up for 50 cents and try to cash it or send it back to Detroit and try to get their regular, the full amount of money that it says on the note. But many times it went from one hand to another, and these were all carpet backers, <laughs> And uh, each one took a little cut, and so it got a reputation. The money, the paper money got a reputation. New England was, was fine. They were just an... Occasional bank that didn't adhere to all the rules, and uh, it wasn't really a terrible problem. That's not counterfeiting. That's that's something else. But but anyway, if the, the banks in Detroit and where else out there in the in the wilderness, they started sending these notes to the east and to the south. As you mentioned before, these got, became known as wildcat banks. You couldn't find the bank, even though it had a town on it. The town may have been 400 miles from the largest uh, other town, <laughs> so who was going to go looking for them? So the, these, you, know, you couldn't redeem your, your paper money. Uh, so things like that would happen. Then there were counterfeiters which that took a note and looked at it and drew up another note. You know, sometimes it was by hand, sometimes it was an engraved note, and uh, they would imitate it. So that's a what's called a counterfeit note. That happened quite a bit, and that happened a lot around New England, too, because it was just it was people not involved in banking that were doing it. It was just people on the street. That's another problem that there was. The banks really couldn't do much about that, so you can't really say that the, they encouraged it or anything. They may have encouraged it by the designs that they put on, uh, had the banknote companies put on their notes. Some are easier to duplicate than others. But that's about the, the size of that. So is
2: there a particular note that you think of as being particularly representative of either notes in Massachusetts or in New England more broadly? Are, are there any vignettes that you feel really illustrate some aspect of the geography or of life in New England? Are there a handful of notes that you think are, are particularly beautiful in this class of collectibles?
3: Yes. <laughs> New England is blessed with having a lot of history And a lot of the banks chose to have something engraved on their note that represented that historical instance or that historical place and so forth. In the next issue of Nina News, which will be coming out the 1st of December, we usually have three or four articles on paper money and other coins and so forth. But there's going to be one that I wrote, and it's The Battle of Bunker Hill, as you've never seen it before. I'm not going to tell you (laughs) what the answer is or what I'm getting at, but if you get Nina News or subscribe and get it, uh, you'll see what I mean. It's a picture of the the Battle of Bunker Hill, and you've probably seen pictures of that over the years, and those three or four pictures that that are in the back of your mind are the only ones that normally were ever seen. But this particular banknote had a special special vignette engraved, altogether different scene, and it's really something. Okay. So, well, thank so you, guys, you for that cheese. So, oh. <laughs> uh, so that, that's just one. Different places, different banks would sometimes put on their notes the scene of, let's say, a, a seaport, as it would appear in those days, which isn't usually too much different than it looks like now. But then people would get to uh, to understand that that's This note comes from a bank, and that bank's in Gloucester or wherever, uh, because it has a scene of downtown Gloucester. Things like that quite often happened. Mostly in in New England, in uh, New Jersey, New York, the the banks in the east. In the west, it was mostly regular engraved vignettes that were used over and over, just in different quantities and uh, on different notes. But very often, if you look through it, couple hundred notes, you'll notice, oh, I've seen this particular engraving before and that particular one. And look, over here, on these two notes, is the same engraving. So they were used, the bank note companies would probably not charge as much to the bank to use a vignette that's already been used because they they would have the plate for that already.
1: You teased the uh, Nina News story other than that, and of course, Chris referenced the Whitman Encyclopedia of Paper Money. For somebody who wants to dive into obsolete banknotes of uh, Massachusetts or otherwise, what resources and organizations would you recommend they uh, consult and, and look into?
3: Oh, boy. Um, I've had similar questions asked over the years, and I almost invariably throw water on that situation. A person can't just come out of the blue and say, I want to collect these things. He's got to really grow up in the collecting fraternity to know what he even wants. Yeah, he can buy a dozen notes and be happy and so forth. But to be a real collector and to do research and all that, you got to know what you're looking for. And the only way you're going to know is to know what's out there. You, you do need a reference. The best reference going is the Whitman uh, series of catalogs. They're large. <laughs> These aren't small Whitman books but there's i think there's 8 8 different uh, volumes right so now. far yeah and it's maybe not i don't think it's half half the states are covered yet no so when that's completed i mean there's going to be 15 16 perhaps uh issues like that and, and each one's the size of the Manhattan phone book
1: they are quite enormous and impressive mm-hmm. i have most of them so i, I know mm-hmm. <laughs> i know of what you speak
3: some people also ask me, they'd like to get started no matter what I say, and uh, they say, which book should I get? I, I just say, why don't you just start with New England? Just get the books that uh, have the New England banks in them. The Whitman uh, books are really nice because they have history of the town, history of the banks, history of the people sometimes, and it's a good starting place. You can you can actually make a collection of just New England, like I did, I guess. <laughs> Some people, though, collected every single state that was available. I, I think there were only about 28 or so states that were states back then. So you don't have an open ended search going on. Once you get through the north and the east, and Indiana, maybe, and Ohio, then things calm down. So.
2: How often are new obsolete notes discovered? It seems, you know, record keeping, some institutions kept pretty careful records others less so. Within New England,
3: how often
2: do are new issues discovered? And do you think that there are many more that have yet to be uncovered?
3: Tough question, but when Dave Bowers was editing that uh, Whitman catalog and the, the New England part of it, I think he discovered, it might have been two, but I think it was just one bank that he had never heard of. That was a major discovery. As far as notes are concerned, it seems like you very often, not very often, but occasionally will find a note that's not known. Like the one I just mentioned from Bunker Hill, with the Bunker Hill thing. There are notes known from the bank. and There might be even six or eight different notes, maybe more. But that particular one with that vignette it was never seen.
2: Oh. Your mention of Bunker Hill, the Battle of Bunker Hill, as you've never seen it before, makes me think that there are probably images of historical figures and historical episodes that kind of play out on these vignettes. Could you tell us about a couple of the more prominent ones or a couple of the more interesting ones and how someone interested in different parts of history might connect with certain notes that were issued in New England?
3: Sure. Of course, images of people, and usually it was an important person, (laughs) Usually a federal employee, you know, president, vice president, John Adams, Washington, Lincoln, all the famous guys that we would expect. They're well represented on various obsolete banknotes. When you get past the people that that other people know, uh, then you start seeing vignettes or portraits of people who you have no idea who they are. And these fellows very often seem to either be a bank officer, probably the president, or someone sort of famous in the locality that the note was printed. People can relate to that. Let's say uh, Manchester by the Sea <laughs> in, uh, Massachusetts might put a picture of Joe Manchester <laughs> on the note because he was, um, he was a good guy. And uh, who outside of Manchester by the Sea is going to know who he is, you know, and that happens. You you wonder who the heck are these people? In the past, there were uh, dictionaries. They call them of uh, portraits, American portraits, big, huge, thick books of people's pictures. <laughs> and of course, you don't know the name of the person you're looking for, so you have to go through page by page. But very often, you can find them in there. The name of the person was Samuel Farrar. Does that ring, ring a bell to you?
2: Uh, Samuel. Well, it sounds a little bit like Ferrari,
3: but yeah, yeah. That's why I piqued my interest. My dad's name is Samuel, <laughs> and so, but he he had something to do with was it Phillips Academy or something up that way?
2: That probably be Phillips Andover, because Phillips Exeter is in New Hampshire.
3: That, yeah, Phil, okay, Phillips Andover, cause it was. In I think Andover. that would be
2: my guess. If, if any of our listeners know better, they can they can tell me. But yeah. I I think well, it would be Phillips Andover.
3: It's on an Andover note, so I I know that that must be it. But, uh, you know, again, who's going to know who this fellow is? But up there, he's pretty popular. There were, uh, you know, occasional notes that make things interesting when, when you see what's printed on them. Sometimes there's a railroad train going back to 1830 or 40 when they first started, and, and you could put together a collection even of uh, railroad trains on banknotes, and, and you could have one of each style, I think. There's, it was very popular. Ships. Certain ships, especially the seaports like Salem and Cape uh they all had ships you know the maritime interest and uh, people collect the, that stuff and uh, it's interesting friends of mine who collected and researched the ships named a dozen or more ships that didn't have names on banknotes, but they were able to tell which ship that whoever the engraver was put on there cool oh.
2: Huh. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for talking to us today, John. Seems like that's, a, you know, talking about some uh, local landmarks of interest seems as a, a good a place to wrap as any. Thanks so much for taking
3: the time to uh, talk with us today, John. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Chris, anytime.
1: Thank you. And that was our interview with John Ferrari. We thank you for listening and hope you found that enjoyable as we had fun talking with him. And
0: if you did find it enjoyable and if you found the rest of the episode interesting or informative and if you've enjoyed any of our previous content, please remember not only to keep on listening every week, but subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts and feel free to reach out to us uh, as well. We love to hear from listeners. And until next week, happy
1: collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at CoinWorld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter.
0: Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for a segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the CoinWorld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes, choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.